Section sixteen of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. After I had been here in Rotterdam about three months, my maid Amy writes me word that she had received a letter from her friend, as she called him. That, by the way, was the prince's gentleman, that had been Amy's extraordinary friend indeed, for Amy owned to me he had lain with her a hundred times, that is to say, as often as he pleased, and perhaps in the eight years which that affair lasted, it might be a great deal oftener. This was what she called her friend, who she corresponded with upon this particular subject, and among other things sent her this particular news, that my extraordinary friend, my real husband, who rode in the gendarme, was dead, that he was killed in a re-encounter, as they call it, or accidental scuffle among the troopers, and so the jade congratulated me upon my being now a real free woman. And now, madame, says she, at the end of her letter, you have nothing to do but to come hither and set up a coach and a good equipage, and if beauty and a good fortune won't make you duchess, nothing will. But I had not fixed my measures yet. I had no inclination to be a wife again. I had had such bad luck with my first husband. I hated the thoughts of it. I found that a wife is treated with indifference, a mistress with a strong passion. A wife is looked upon as but an upper servant. A mistress is a sovereign. A wife must give up all she has, have every reserve she makes for herself to be thought hard of, and be upbraided with her very pin-money. Whereas a mistress makes the saying true, that what the man has is hers, and what she has is her own. The wife bears a thousand insults, and is forced to sit still and bear it, or part and be undone. Mistress insulted helps herself immediately and takes another. These were my wicked arguments for whoring, but I never set against them the difference another way. I may say every other way. How that first a wife appears boldly and honourably with her husband lives at home, and possesses his house, his servants, his equipages, and has a right to them all, and to call them her own, entertains his friends, owns his children, and has the return of duty and affection from them, as they are her own, and claims upon his estate by the custom of England, if he dies and leaves her a widow. The whore skulks about in lodgings is visited in the dark, disowned upon all occasions before God and man, is maintained indeed for a time, but is certainly condemned to be abandoned at last, and left to her miseries of fate, and her own just disaster. If she has any children, her endeavour is to get rid of them, and not maintain them, and if she lives, she is certain to see them all hate her be ashamed of her. While the vice rages, and the man is in the devil's hand, she has him, and 
while she has him, she makes a prey of him, but if he happens to fall sick, and if any disaster befalls him, the cause of all lies upon her. He is sure to lay all his misfortunes at her door, and if once he comes to repentance or makes but one step towards the reformation, he begins with her, leaves her, uses her as she deserves, hates her, abhors her, and sees her no more, and that with this never-failing addition, namely that the more sincere and unfeigned his repentance is, the more earnestly he looks up, and the more effectually he looks in, the more his aversion to her increases, and he curses her from the bottom of his soul. Nay, it must be a kind of excess of charity, if he so much as wishes God may forgive her. The opposite circumstances of a wife and horror are such and so many, and I have since seen the difference with such eyes, as I could dwell upon the subject a great while. But my business is history. I had a long scene of folly yet to run over. Perhaps the model of all my story may bring me back again to this part, and if it does, I shall speak of it fully. While I continued in Holland, I received several letters from my friend, so I had good reason to call him, the merchant in Paris, in which he gave me a farther account of the conduct of that rogue, the Jew, and how he acted after I was gone how impatient he was while the said merchant kept him in suspense, expecting me to come again, and how he raged when he found I came no more. It seems, after he found I did not come, he found out by his unwearied inquiry where I had lived, and that I had been kept as a mistress by some great person, but he could never learn by who, except that he learnt the colour of his livery pursuit of this inquiry he guessed at the right person, but could not make it out, or offer any positive proof of it, but he found out the prince's gentleman, and talked so saucily to him of it that the gentleman treated him, as the French call it, coup de baton, that is to say, caned him very severely as he deserved, and that not satisfying him, or curing his insolence, he was met one night late upon the Pont Neuf in Paris by two men, who, muffling him up in a great cloak, carried him into a more private place, and cut off both his ears, telling him it was for talking impudently of his superiors, adding that he should take care to govern his tongue better, and behave with more manners, or the next time they would cut his tongue out of his head. This put a check to his sauciness that way, but he comes back to the merchant and threatened to begin a process against him for corresponding with me, and being accessory to the murder of the jeweller, etc. The merchant found by his discourse that he supposed I was protected by the said prince. Nay, the rogue said he was sure I was in his lodgings at Versailles, for he never had so much as the least intimation where I had really gone, but that I was there, he was certain, and certain that the merchant was privy to it. The merchant bade him defiance. However, he gave him a great deal of trouble 
and put him into a great charge, and had liked to have brought him in for a party to my escape, in which case he would have been obliged to have produced me, and that in the penalty of some capital sum of money. But the merchant was too many for him another way, for he brought an information against him for a cheat, wherein laying down the whole fact how he intended falsely to accuse the widow of the jeweller for the supposed murder of her husband, that he did it purely to get the jewels from her, and that he offered to bring him, the merchant, in, to be confederate with him, and to share the jewels between them, proving also his design to get the jewels into his hands, and then to have dropped his prosecution upon condition of my quitting the jewels to him. Upon this charge he got him laid by the heels, so he was sent to the conciergerie, that is to say, to Bridewell, and the merchant cleared. He got out of jail in a little while, though not without the help of money, and continued teasing the merchant a long while, and at last threatening to assassinate and murder him. So the merchant, who having buried his wife about two months before, was now a single man, and not knowing what such a villain might do, thought fit to quit Paris and come away to Holland also. It is most certain that, speaking of originals, I was the source and spring of all that trouble and vexation to this honest gentleman, and as it was afterwards in my power to have made him full satisfaction, I did not I cannot say, but I added in gratitude to all the rest of my follies. But of that I should give a fuller account presently. I was surprised one morning when being at the merchant's house, who he had recommended me to in Rotterdam, and being busy in his counting-house, managing my bills, and preparing to write a letter to him to Paris, I heard the noise of horses at the door. It is not very common in a city where everybody passes by water, but he had, it seems, ferried over the Mars from Willemstadt, who came to the very door, and I was looking towards the door upon hearing the horses, saw a gentleman alight and come in at the gate. I knew nothing, and expected nothing, to be sure, of the person, but, as I say, was surprised indeed more than ordinarily surprised when coming nearer to me i saw it was my merchant of paris my benefactor and indeed my deliverer i confess it was an agreeable surprise to me and i was exceeding glad to see him who was so honourable and so kind to me and who indeed had saved my life as soon as he saw me he ran to me took me in his arms and kissed me with a freedom that he never offered to take with me before Dear madame, says he, I am glad to see you safe in this country. If you had stayed two days longer in Paris, you had been undone. I was so glad to see him that I could not speak a good while, and I burst out into tears without speaking a word for a minute. But I recovered that disorder and said, The more, sir, is my obligation to you that saved my life, and added, I am glad to see you here. I may consider how to balance an account in which I am so much your debtor. You and I will adjust that matter easily, says he. Now we are so near together. Pray, where do you lodge, says he? In a very honest good house, said I, where that gentleman, your friend, recommended me, pointing to the merchant in whose house 
we then were. And where you may lodge too, says the gentleman, if it suits with your business and your other conveniency. With all my heart, says he. Then, madame, adds he, turning to me, I shall be near you, and have time to tell you a story which will be very long, and yet many ways very pleasant to you. How troublesome that devilish fellow the Jew had been to me on your account, and what a hellish snare he had laid for you, if he could have found you. I shall have leisure, too, sir, said I, to tell you all my adventures, since that which have not been a few, I assure you. In short, he took up his lodgings in the same house where I lodged, and the room he lay in opened, as he was wishing it would, just opposite to my lodging-room, so we could almost call out of bed to one another. And I was not at all shy of him on that score, for I believed him perfectly honest, and so indeed he was and if he had not, that article was at present no part of my concern. It was not till two or three days, and after his first hurries of business were over, that we began to enter into the history of our affairs on every side. But when we began, it took up all our conversation, almost a fortnight. First I gave him a particular account of everything that happened, material upon my voyage and how we were driven into Harwich by a very terrible storm, how I had left my woman behind me, so frighted with the danger she had been in, that she durst not venture to set her foot into a ship again any more, and that I had not come myself if the bills I had of him had not been payable in Holland, but that money he might see would make a woman go anywhere. He seemed to laugh at all our womanish fears upon the occasion of the storm, telling me it was nothing but what was very ordinary in those seas, but that they had harbours on every coast so near that they were seldom in danger of being lost indeed. For, says he, if they cannot fetch one coast, they can always stand away for another, and one afore it, as he called it, for one side or other. But when I came to tell him what a crazy ship it was, and how even when they got into Harwich and into smooth water, they were fain to run the ship on shore, or she would have sunk in the very harbour. And when I told him that when I looked out at the cabin door, I saw the Dutchmen one upon his knees here and another there at their prayers, then indeed he acknowledged I had reason to be alarmed. But, smiling, he added, But you, madame, says he, are so good a lady, and so pious, you would but have gone to heaven a little the sooner. The difference had not been much to you. I confess, when he said this, it made all the blood turn in my veins, and I thought I should have fainted. Poor gentleman, thought I, you know little of me. What would I give to be really what you really think me to be? He perceived the disorder, but said nothing till I spoke, when shaking my head, sir said i death in any shape has some terror in it but in the frightful figure of a storm at sea and a sinking ship it comes with a double a treble and indeed an inexpressible horror and if i were that saint you think me to be which god knows i am not it is still very dismal I desire 
to die in a calm, if I can. He said a great many good things, and very prettily ordered his discourse between serious reflection and compliment, but I too much guilt to relish it as it was meant. So I turned it off to something else, and talked of the necessity I had on me to come to Holland. But I wished myself safe, I'm sure, in England again. He told me he was glad I had such an obligation upon me to come over into Holland, however, but hinted that he was so interested in my welfare, and besides, had such further designs upon me, that if I had not so happily been found in Holland, he was resolved to have gone to England to see me, and that it was one of the principal reasons of his leaving Paris. I told him I was extremely obliged to him for so far interesting himself in my affairs, but that I had been so far his debtor before that I knew not how anything could increase the debt, for I owed my life to him already could not be in debt for anything more valuable than that. He answered in the most obliging manner possible, that he would put it in my power to pay that debt, and all the obligations besides that ever he had or should be able to lay upon me. I began to understand him now, and to see plainly that he resolved to make love to me and I would by no means seem to take the hint, and besides I knew that he had a wife with him in Paris, and I had, just then at least, no gust to any more intriguing. However, he surprised me to a sudden notice of the thing a little while after by saying something in his discourse that he did, as he said, in his wife's days. I started at that word. What mean you by that, sir? said I. Have you not a wife at Paris? No, madame, indeed, said he. My wife died at the beginning of September last, which it seems was but a little after I came away. We lived in the same house all this while, and as we lodged not far off one another, Opportunities were not wanting of as near an acquaintance as we might desire, nor have such opportunities the least agency in vicious minds to bring to pass, even that what they might not intend at first. However, though he courted so much at a distance, yet his pretensions were very honourable. As I had said before, found him a most disinterested friend, perfectly honest in his dealings, even when I trusted him with all I had. So now I found him strictly virtuous, till I made him otherwise myself, even almost whether he would or no, as you shall hear. It was not long after our former discourse, when he repeated what he had insinuated before, namely, that he had yet a design to lay before me, which, if I would agree to his proposals, would more than balance all accounts between us. I told him I could not reasonably deny him anything, and except one thing, which I hoped and believed he would not think of, 
I should think myself very ungrateful if I did not do everything for him that lay in my power. He told me what he should desire of me would be fully in my power to grant, or else he should be very unfriendly to offer it. And still, all this while he declined making the proposal, as he called it, and so for that time we ended our discourse, turning it off to other things. So that, in short, I began to think he might have met with some disaster in his business, and might have come away from Paris in some discredit, or had had some blow on his affairs in general. But as really I had kindness enough to have parted with a good sum to have helped him, and was in gratitude bound to have done so, having so effectually saved me all I had. So I resolved to make him the offer the first time I had an opportunity, which two or three days after offered itself very much to my satisfaction. He had told me at large, though on several occasions, the treatment he had met with from the Jew, and what expense he had put him to, how at length he had cast him as above and had recovered good damage of him, but that the rogue was unable to make him any considerable reparation. He told me also how the prince's gentlemen have resented his treatment of his master, and how he had caused him to be used upon the pont neuf, etc., as I have mentioned above, which I laughed at most heartily. "'It is a pity,' said I, "'that I should sit here and make that gentleman no amends, if you would direct me, sir,' said I, "'how to do it.' I would make him a handsome present, and acknowledge the justice he had done to me as well as to the prince, his master. He said he would do what I directed in it, so I told him I would send him five hundred crowns. That's too much, said he, for you are but half interested in the usage of the Jew. It was on his master's account he corrected him, not on yours. Well, however, we were obliged to do nothing in it for neither of us knew how to direct a letter to him, or to direct anybody to him. So I told him I would leave it till I came to England, for that my woman Amy corresponded with him, and that he had made love to her. Well, but, sir, said I, as in requital for his generous concern for me, I am careful to think of him it is but just that what expense you have been obliged to be at, which was all on my account, should be repaid you. And therefore, said I, let me see. And there I paused, and began to reckon up what I had observed from his own discourse, that had cost him in several disputes and hearings which he had had with that dog of a Jew and I cast them up at something above two thousand one hundred and thirty crowns. So I pulled out some bills which I had upon a merchant in Amsterdam, and a particular account in bank, and was looking on them in order to give them to him, when he, seeing evidently what I was going about, interrupted me with some warmth, and told me he would have nothing of me on that account, and desired I would not pull out my bills and papers on that score, that he had not told me the story on that account, or with any such view, that it had been his misfortune first to bring that ugly rogue to me, which, though it was with a good design, yet he would punish himself with the expense he had been at for his being so unlucky to me. 
that I could not think so hard of him as to suppose he would take money of me, a widow, for serving me, doing acts of kindness to me in a strange country, and in distress, too. But he said he would repeat what he had said before, that he kept me for a deeper reckoning, and that, as he told me, he would put me into a posture to even all that favour, as I call it, at once, so we should talk it over another time, and balance all together. Now I expected it would come out, but still he put it off as before, from whence I concluded it could not be matter of love, for that those things are not usually delayed in such a manner, and therefore it must be matter of money. Upon what thought I broke the silence and told him that, as he knew I had by obligation more kindness for him than to deny any favour to him that I could grant, and that he seemed backward to mention his case, I begged leave of him to give me leave to ask him whether anything lay upon his mind with respect to his business and effects in the world, that if it did, he knew what I had in the world as well as I did and that if he wanted money I would let him have any sum for his occasion, as far as five or six thousand pistoles, and he should pay me as his own affairs would permit, and that if he never paid me, I would assure him that I would never give him any trouble for it. He rose up with ceremony, and gave me thanks in terms that sufficiently told me he had been bred among people more polite more courteous than is esteemed the ordinary usage of the dutch and after his compliment was over he came nearer to me and told me he was obliged to assure me though with repeated acknowledgments of my kind offer that he was not in any want of money that he had met with no uneasiness in any of his affairs no not of any kind whatever except that of the loss of his wife and one of his children which indeed had troubled him much, but that this was no part of what he had to offer me, and by granting which I should balance all obligations, but that, in short, it was that seeing Providence had, as it were for that purpose, taken his wife from him, I would make up the loss to him, and with that he held me fast in his arms, and kissing me, would not give me leave to say no, and hardly to breathe. At length, having got room to speak, I told him that, as I had said before, I could deny him but one thing in the world. I was very sorry he should propose that thing, only that I could not grant. I could not but smile, however, to myself, that he should make so many circles and roundabout motions to come at a discourse which had no such rarity at the bottom of it, if he had known all. But there was another reason why I resolved not to have him, when at the same time, if he had courted me in a manner less honest or virtuous, I believe I should not have denied him. But I shall come to that part presently. He was, as I have said, long a bringing it out, but when he had brought it out, he pursued it with such importunities as would admit of no denial. At least he intended they should not. I resisted them obstinately, and yet with expressions of the utmost kindness and respect for him that could be imagined, often telling him there was nothing in the world that I could deny him, 
and showing him all the respect, and upon all occasions treating him with intimacy and freedom, as if he had been my brother. He tried all the ways imaginable to bring his design to pass, but I was inflexible. At last he thought of a way which, he flattered himself, would not fail. Nor would he have been mistaken, perhaps, in any other woman in the world but me. This was to try if he could take me at an advantage, and get to bed with me, and then, as was most rational to think, I should willingly enough marry him afterwards. We were so intimate together that nothing but man and wife could, or at least ought, to be more. But still our freedoms kept within the bounds of modesty and decency. But one evening, above all the rest, we were very merry, and I fancied he pushed the mirth to watch for his advantage, and I resolved that I would at least feign to be as merry as he, but that, in short, if he offered anything, he should have his will easily enough. At one o'clock in the morning, for so long, we set up together, I said, Come, it is one o'clock, I must go to bed. Well, says he, I'll go with you. No, no, says I, go to your own chamber. He said he would go to bed with me. Nay, says I, if you will, I don't know what to say. If I can't help it, you must. However, I got from him, left him, and went into my chamber, but did not shut the door, and as he could easily see that I was undressing myself, he steps to his own room, which was but on the same floor, and in a few minutes undresses himself also, and returns to my door in his gown and slippers. I thought he had been gone indeed so that he had been in jest, and by the way thought either he had no mind to the thing, or that he never intended it. So I shut my door, that is, latched it, for I seldom locked or bolted it, and went to bed. I had not been in bed a minute, but he comes in his gown to the door, and opens it a little way, but not enough to come in or look in, and says softly, what are you really gone to bed yes yes says i get you gone no indeed says he i shall not be gone you gave me leave before to come to bed and you can't say get you gone now so he comes into my room and then turns about and fastens the door and immediately comes to the bedside to me I pretended to scold and struggle, and bid him be gone with more warmth than before, but it was all one. He had not a rag of clothes on, but his gown, and slippers and shirt, so he throws off his gown, and throws open the bed, and came in at once. I made a seeming resistance, but it was no more, indeed, for as above. I resolved from the beginning he should lie with me if he would, and for the rest I left it to come after. Well, he lay with me that night, and the next, 
and the next, and very merry we were all the three days between. But the third night he began to be a little more grave. Now, my dear, says he, though I have pushed this matter farther than ever I intended, than I believe you expected from me, who never made any pretences to you, but what were very honest, yet to heal it all up, and let you see how sincerely I mean it at first, and how honest I will ever be to you, I am ready to marry you still, and desire you to let it done to-morrow morning, and I will give you the same fair conditions of marriage as I would have done before. This, it must be owned, was a testimony that he was very honest, and that he loved me sincerely, but I construed it quite another way, namely, that he aimed at the money. But how surprised did he look, and how was he confounded when he found me receive his proposal with coldness and indifference, and still tell him that it was the only thing I could not grant? He was astonished. What, not take me now, says he, when I have been a bed with you? I answered coldly, though respectfully still. It is true, to my shame be it spoken, says I, that you have taken me by surprise, and have had your will of me. But I hope you will not take it ill that I cannot consent to marry for all that. If I am with child, said I, care must be taken to manage that as you shall direct. I hope you won't expose me for having exposed myself to you, but I cannot go on any farther. And at that point I stood, and would hear of no matrony by any means. Now, because this may seem a little odd, I shall state the matter clearly, as I understood it myself. I knew that while I was a mistress, it is customary for the person kept to receive from them that keep. But if I should be a wife, all I had then was given up to the husband, and I was thenceforth to be under his authority only. And as I had money enough, and needed not fear being what they call a cast-off mistress, so I had no need to give him twenty thousand pounds to marry me, which had been buying my lodging too dear a great deal. Thus his project of coming to bed to me was a bite upon himself, while he intended it for a bite upon me, and he was no nearer his aim of marrying me than he was before. All his arguments he could urge upon the subject of matrimony were at an end. I positively declined marrying him, and as he had refused a thousand pistoles which I had offered him in compensation for his expenses and loss at Paris with the Jew, and had done it upon the hopes he had of marrying me, so when he found his way difficult still, he was amazed, and I had some reason to believe, repented that he had refused the money. But thus it is when men run into wicked measures to bring their designs about. I, that was infinitely obliged to him before, began to talk of him as if I had balanced accounts with him now, and that the favour of lying with a whore was equal not to the thousand pistoles only, 
but to all the debt I owed him for saving my life and all my effects. But he drew himself into it, and though it was a dear bargain, yet it was a bargain of his own making. He could not say I had tricked him into it, but as he projected and drew me in to lie with him, depending that was a sure game in order to a marriage, so I granted him the favour, as he called it, to balance the account of favours received from him, and keep the thousand pistoles with a good grace. He was extremely disappointed in this article, and knew not how to manage for a great while, as I dare say, if he had not expected to have made it an earnest for marrying me, he would not have attempted me the other way, so I believed, if it had not been for the money which he knew I had, for he would never have desired to marry me after he had lain with me. For I is the man that cares to marry a whore, though of its own making. And as I knew him to be no fool, so I did him no wrong, when I supposed that, but for the money, he would not have had any thoughts of me that way, especially after my yielding as I had done, in which it is to be remembered that I made no capitulation for marrying him when I yielded to him, but let him do just what he pleased, without any previous bargain. Well, hitherto we went on guesses at one other's designs, but as he continued to importune me to marry, though he had lain with me, and still did lie with me as often as he pleased, and I continued to refuse to marry him, though I let him lie with me whenever he desired it, I say as these two circumstances made up our conversation, it could not continue long thus, but we must come to an explanation. One morning, in the middle of our unlawful freedoms, that is to say, when we were in bed together, he sighed, and told me he desired my leave to ask me one question, and that I would give him an answer to it with the same ingenious freedom and honesty that I had used to treat him with. I told him I would. I then his question was why I would not marry him, seeing I allowed him all the freedom of a husband. Or, says he, my dear, since you have been so kind as to take me to your bed, why will you not make me your own, and take me for good and all, that we may enjoy ourselves without any reproach to one another? I told him that, as I confessed, it was the only thing I could not comply with him in, so it was the only thing in all my actions that I could not give him a reason for. That it was true I had let him come to bed to me, which was supposed to be the greatest favour a woman could grant, but it was evident, and he might see it, that as I was sensible of the obligation I was under to him for saving me from the worst circumstance it was possible for me to be brought to, I could deny him nothing, and if I had had any greater favour to yield him, I should have done it, that of matrimony only excepted he could not but see that I loved him to an extraordinary degree, and every part of my behaviour to him, but that as to marrying, which was giving up my liberty, it was what once he knew I had done, and he had seen how it had hurried me up and down in the world, and what it had exposed me to, that 
I had an aversion to it, and desired he would not insist upon it. He might easily see I had no aversion to him, and that, if I was with child by him, he should see a testimony of my kindness to the father, for that I would settle all I had in the world upon the child. He was mute a good while. At last, says he, come, my dear, you are the first woman in the world that ever lay with a man and then refused to marry him, therefore there must be some other reason for your refusal. And I have therefore one other request, and that is, if I guess at the true reason and remove the objection, will you then yield to me? I told him if he removed the objection, I must needs comply. I should certainly do everything that I had no objection against. Well then, my dear, it must be that either you are already engaged or married to some other man, or you are not willing to dispose of your money to me and expect to advance yourself higher with your fortune. Now, if it is the first of these, my mouth will be stopped, and I have no more to say. But if it be the last, I am prepared effectually remove the objection, and answer all you can say on that subject. I took him up short at the first of these, telling him he must have base thoughts of me indeed, to think that I could yield to him in such a manner as I had done and to continue it with so much freedom as he found I did, if I had a husband or engaged to any other man, and that he might depend upon it, that was not my case, nor any part of my case. Why then, said he, as to the other, I have an offer to make to you that shall take off all the objection, vis-a-vis, that I will not touch one pistole of your estate, more than shall be with your own voluntary consent, neither now or at any other time. But you shall settle it as you please for your life, and upon who you please after your death, that I should see he was able to maintain me without it, and that it was not for that that he followed me from Paris. I was indeed surprised at that part of his offer and he might easily perceive it. It was not only what I did not expect, but it was not what I knew, not what answer to make to. He had indeed removed my principal objection, nay, all my objections, and it was not possible for me to give any answer, for if upon so generous an offer I should agree with him, I then did as good as confess that it was upon the account of my money that I refused him that though I could give up my virtue and expose myself, yet I would not give up my money, which, though it was true, yet was really too gross for me to acknowledge, and I could not pretend to marry him upon that principle neither. Then, as to having him, and make over all my estate out of his hands, so as not to give him the management of what I had, I thought it would be not only a little gothic and inhuman, but would be always a foundation of unkindness between us, and render us suspected one to another, so that upon the whole I was obliged to give a new turn to it, and talk upon a kind of an elevated strain, which really was not in my thoughts at first at all, for I own as above that divesting myself of my estate and putting my money out of my hand was the sum of the matter that made me refuse to marry. But, I say, I 
gave it a new turn upon this occasion, as follows. End of section 16